0: So by way of reminder, chapters 1 through 4 of 1 Corinthians, that's a pass- the a book that we're studying right now, uh, deal with divisions in the church, and we've been you know, covering divisions week after week, and I'm happy to finally get to chapter 5, it begins a larger discussion, chapters 5 through 7, about sexual ethics and eth- ethical problems in the church. And there, there are certainly uh, a number of pretty substantial eth- sexual ethical problems in, in this Church, Listen to how one translation begins, chapter 5, verse 1, and this is like a legit translation. Everybody's talking about the sex scandal that's going on in your community, not least because it's a kind of immorality that not even the pagans um, practice. You you never see that verse on a coffee mug at Cracker Barrel, but... uh, yeah, it was, we sometimes will say things like this to ourselves, that if there was only a church in Phoenix that was like the first century apostolic church, then maybe I wouldn't be as cynical about church as I am. Um, but, I mean, come on, they had sex scandals too. Uh, that's the pathetic truth. I mean, it is pathetic. It's, ab- it's ab- absolutely pathetic. Um, I mean, the church, in a very real sense, ha- has always been pathetic. It's always been a mess. It's always been and supposed to be a hospital for the sick and not a, a country club for the upwardly mobile and successful. And, uh, I mean, this is one of those passages that would make you go, wow. Um, even though the, the world of ancient Greece and Rome was extremely lax on sexual morality, um, even their world had limits. You know, in most towns and villages, people would know that however normal it was to uh, have sex with a prostitute. However normal it was, how common it was to participate in orgiastic festivals at temples and shrines. There were still lines that you didn't cross, such as such as incest. And apparently, the situation that we have here is a man in the Church of Corinth is having an incestuous relationship with uh, his own stepmother, while, while probably has like his father's second wife, while his father is still alive. And so the the church is tolerating the situation. It's a situation that not even a self-respecting pagan would have permitted. And so what we get is essentially a passage that is not hard to understand, but a passage I think that's very difficult to apply in the 21st century um, because it touches on a number of um, complex, challenging issues like church discipline rules for not associating with certain people, and then there's a very important word about how we relate to those uh, outside the church. If you're visiting with us today, uh, probably not the most inspiring passage to, to come and hear, but um, this is God's word, and I, I think hopefully the, the way that we tackle it, there'll be something here for for everyone. And so we, we, should, we should pray to that effect. So let's pray again. Our Father in heaven, Uh, Take this passage and teach us Lord. It's not easy for uh, us to understand Always what you're trying to say in a in a passage that's 2,000 years ago and um, We want to we want to know how to wisely apply it Likewise, it is easy for us to throw stones at others at other sins, you know The sexual sins of others all the while ignoring major holes in our own moral integrity and failing to acknowledge that we are likewise sexually broken or greedy or hypocritical. So all of those things are in the foreground and we pray that you would work through it all. Um, Meet with us and speak to us now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Five one. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that's not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are arrogant? Like, shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? Even though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. So when you assemble in the name of our Lord Jesus... Uh, And I am with you in spirit, so basically their next church service, Um, with the power of our Lord Jesus. Hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Uh, Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed." Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with the old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of the world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Uh, Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or ver- verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. And then he quotes the, the book of Deuteronomy remove the evil person from among you. I'll go into a fuller explanation of the Christian sexual ethic a, w- a few weeks from now. But if you notice here, Paul doesn't even bother arguing that this behavior is wrong. He just assumes that it is. And well, why would he make that assumption? In a Roman court of law, this case, the case of, um, of this man and, and the stepmother, it would probably be considered both adultery and incest. And if somebody in Roman law was convicted of this crime, their punishment would be permanent exile from the city, that they lived in, along with the loss of their citizenship and the loss of all personal property. So just given the severity of that situation, what were they thinking? I mean, what what could possibly have been going through the mind of this church to tolerate such a behavior? And the best that we can guess is that presumably this is like an early instance uh, distortion of Christian freedom, um, they're convinced, most likely, that now they have the Spirit, now they are enlightened, now they have various gifts, spiritual giftings. They have passed beyond the ordinary categories of good and bad, good and evil, and into a moral world where anything can be done, anything goes, everything is permissible as long as it seems to be you know, sanctioned by, inspired by the Spirit. So, I mean, basically, they're saying we've left behind the old world of pagan beliefs and even the old world of pagan sexual taboos. And you kind of notice that they um, were proud of this because he says, Guy, you got to stop boasting, but they're proud of it. They're, they're proud of how spiritually grown up they think they have become. I mean, we think about also like today's sexual ethic. I mean, obviously, you got a stepmother and a son. They're two adults. They're consenting they're uh, probably in love, and we could just imagine them saying something along the lines of, well, this is part of our freedom in Christ. Everything is permissible to us, you know, now that, you know, now that we can speak in tongues, and we can do miracles, and do all kinds of wild and crazy um, spiritually gifted things that they had had been able to do in their congregation. <clears throat> Jonathan Haidt uh, is a uh, a prominent um, author and thinker he wrote a book recently called the righteous mind and he discusses basically how we go about forming moral imagination and moral decisions and he says that basically the normal process that we have for declaring something ethically permissible or not permissible it's largely intuitive like we feel something is intuitively right or wrong or something that we want to be, right or wrong, and then we go searching for sources that justify that belief. In other words, like most people don't have a set of ideas and then act on those ideas. Most people have a set of intuitions. They're either disgusted by something or they're attracted to something, and then only after they sort through their moral intuitions do they then go out and search for ideas that contribute to that and, and sort of make that work. Or, or, you know, they go and they find a group of thinkers or a community that supports those ideas. And frankly, that's true no matter um, who's doing it. Like, everybody does this. It's across all ideologies, all belief systems. It's democrats and republicans it's christian and muslim it's atheist and jewish it's you know progressive sexual beliefs and historic uh, historic sexual beliefs and so on and and whenever we um, make these kind of move from moral intuition to moral justification through and, and find that community that supports our moral intuitions it's very easy to make that community um just like a, a polarizing kind of figure, where then we look at the rest of, of everyone else and just think, well, you're, you're nuts, you're crazy. These, these other people are crazy, and they're wrong. I mean, one of the great challenges we have of the 21st century in America is how, what is our standard for ethical living? Like, what, what really is, what is the standard? How do we determine, um, in, in a pluralistic America like we live in, <laughs> How do we determine what is, is our agreed upon social morality uh, and not? You know, oftentimes uh, we we turn towards the ick factor, you know, and, and for me, the ick factor is very present in this situation. I mean, a stepmother and a son, like, I feel a sense of just ick, moral moral repulsion. You know, you may have you probably didn't notice, it, hear this, but in the news recently, uh, one of the best Major League Baseball players in the world today is a guy by the name of Wander Franco. Wander Franco is a Dominican player. He's probably 23. He's, he's one of the 10 best players in, in the world. And it just came out the other day that he has, he's been having a, a relationship with like a 13-year-old girl back in the Dominican. I mean, you got this multimillion-dollar you know, baseball player with all of his power, all of his clout, and he's having you know, relationships with 13- and, and 14-year-olds. And for me, like, that's just the ick factor. It's there. Uh, I feel it, and most people feel it when they hear that story. At the same time, ick factor is not always a reliable guide, you know? I mean, think about think about— 30, 40 years ago. Many people were appalled, absolutely icked out at the prospect of interracial dating and interracial marriages. Think about the ick factors down throughout the ages towards Jewish people of all, all sorts. Or, or think about some of the things that were ex- thought completely acceptable, like eugenics, that enforced ster- sterilization on certain people, where, which wasn't ick, but for at certain times, people thought it was okay. It, it just... I think whenever we talk about ethics we've got a challenge on our hands to figure out I mean what goes and, and what doesn't go and who gets to who gets to determine and how do we determine that and frankly I wish that we had more conversations in our society along those lines but if you watch any you know presidential debates I mean all you're going to hear is just nonsense and drivel right you're not going to hear anything substantially discussed uh in, in our political sphere. Um, okay, I need to move on. What, you say, well, why didn't the father do something about this? The spineless father, like, couldn't he have put a stop to this situation? And my answer to that is, well, think how utterly humiliating it would have been to take your wife and your son to court. I mean, in a shame and honor culture, like, the horror of of the public humiliation of something like this, you know, it would have been just far too much, too much exposure for him. Um, even today, you know, we just, we witness how the power of shame and the power of fear are strong, strong forces that can keep people in truly dysfunctional situations, right? I mean, maybe you can even look at your own family of origin, uh, your extended family of origin, and your friends and family, that is, and, and just how shame and fear keep us in really sick and unhealthy situations. Well, Paul, he, uh, he's going to put a stop to it. So let's turn to that next. He uses in verse five, look there with me, With uh, he uses language that sounds very harsh. It's like, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So Paul somehow believes he has this almost spiritual connection with a congregation. He says, when I, I am present with you in spirit and I have already judged this situation and what I have determined, my judgment on this case is that this man needs to be expelled, exiled from, from the church community, much like they would be exiled from the city that they were living in had they been uh, convicted by a Roman court, you know, exile him from your church community. I, I noticed, though, that, that the language isn't so much retributive as it is restorative, because he says that the reason, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. How, how would that happen? Well, I think most likely he's drawing here upon sort of the categories of the prodigal son. You remember how the prodigal son, he goes off into the far country into the realm of the Satan, you might say. He wastes all his money on wild living. He lives a truly autonomous life, however he wants, doing whatever he wants. And, And it's there in the far country, in the realm of the Satan, in a pigsty, he comes to himself one day, he comes to his senses and realizes, ah, it was just so much better back in my father's house. And so that's historically what churches are after when they practice this category we call church discipline. When somebody is basically uh, kicked out of a church community, it has at least historically been for the purpose of restoring them to their senses, Um, you know, restoring them from their sins. And in concept, I think in concept, that makes a whole lot of sense. Um, I mean, if we're ever really going to change the world, we probably should get our own house in order first, right? If we really want to go into the world as a countercultural community, then we probably ought to please like start with our own moral integrity and our own moral formation. Um, In concept, church discipline makes sense to me. But in practice, in practice, it feels, it kind of feels like the only sins that'll really get you in trouble in church are what kind of sins? sexual sins, right? It's like we, we have a, almost a double standard that if you create, if you commit a sexual sin here, um, then, then we, we will, we'll bring the hammer down. If you look at verse 11, verse 11, there lists six behaviors in verse 11, and only one of them has to do with sexual, sexual immorality. You know, the very next uh, one in the list after sexual immorality is greed, and then the next one after that is idolatry, and the next one after that is verbal abuse. So the word that Paul uses for sexual morality is porneia, and it's a broad term, and it basically refers to all forms of extramarital sexual activity, which would include the very common sense today of pornography, which is ubiquitous in the church, and premarital sex, which is ubiquitous among basically, you know, all 20-somethings in the church too. And so he says, you know, that's, that's wrong, it's off limits, Jesus uses the same word, but then listed right after that is greed. And I, I don't know about you, but like how many people have you seen uh, disciplined in church for greed? <laughs> how many people have you seen kicked out of church because we said, well, you're too greedy? Never, right? Never. Or Or how about um, verbal abuse. How many people have you seen disciplined or exiled, you know, because of verbal abuse? Um, I've actually seen that on one occasion, but it's it's very, very, very rare. Well, so where am I going with that? Are we, are, should we just start disciplining for lots and lots of sins, so okay, maybe if we discipline for sexual morality, we need to, you know, expand the list into all the other sins that Paul, Paul lists. I, I'm afraid if we try to do that, we'll just end up becoming like a cult, right? I mean, because that's what cults do, is they have all, so many different, you know, rules that you have to follow, and if you step out of line, I mean, then, then they, um, you know, bring the hammer down on you. You know, positively, I I do see something positive here. The thought that there could be a community where someone felt so cared for by that community and there was so much trust in that community that being excluded from that community would actually be an incentive to change your life, because that's what he's really saying, right? The idea that exclusion from this community would, would, would hurt enough that it would make you want to make a major change to your life that I find is a beautiful and compelling vision. I just wonder, is that vision, can you even pull that vision off today, here, now? I mean, when look, we're all consumerists, and like church, I mean, church in America, it, we're just a purveyor of religious goods and services, and you're just, you're just a consumer. <laughs> And as long as i 'm getting my consumeristic needs met at a price as acceptable to me, you know i 'm in, but I mean as soon as as soon as somebody does this, that, or the other, um, you just can leave and go to the next church down down the street. I just wonder, can it even work can it can it even work today i 'd feel deeply conflicted um, about this passage you know at one level, I completely agree with these famous words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know, who was um, assassinated by Hitler, by the Nazis. And these are profound words. Nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. Nothing could be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe bu- rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. Um, and nobody likes that, right? Nobody likes to have their behavior and their conduct questioned by others, and, and me included. I don't like that in the least. The thought that other people in a community would be able to call my actions to question sounds downright horrifying. Um, but we know, we all know that sometimes this is part of of a real and loving relationship. Sometimes, you know, you have to say to another person, "Because I care for you, I can't sit by." and watch you do this to yourself. And sometimes, sometimes that has to be said if you really um, love another person, that that, that that severe rebuke is love, and being silent and not speaking anything is, is not tenderness, but it's cruel, and it's cowardice. Now, we can all agree, can't we, that any social organism that doesn't have accountability Um, is going to be sick with, with a disease inside of it. Like, basically, any organism that has an autoimmune deficiency that can't deal with any disease inside of it is ultimately going to die. I mean, look what happens when churches don't hold anybody accountable. I mean, we can all agree, can't we, that it shouldn't have been the Boston Globe breaking the story about the Roman Catholic clergy sex abuse of children that should not have come from the newspaper that should have come from inside there was a cancer that that was growing and needed to be cut out and even when the church found out about it all it did was just drag its feet and ultimately all it did was blame the victims you know on one hand like, a church that doesn't have any form of discipline, it doesn't have a, a, an immune system, is going to end up just killing everything inside. You know, on the other hand, I've been a pastor for over 20 years, and I I might be able to count on, not on less than one hand, like two fingers, how many times I've seen church discipline actually go well and actually, you know, reach an intended restorative um, end, you know. I I just haven't seen it done well at all, Uh, and I can look, I mean, sadly, I can look back at instances where I failed in that process in pastoring my previous church, Um, and I can look at other instances where it was either self-righteously done or unwisely done or inconsistently done or neglected entirely, and you know, I feel a little, a little almost jealous of Paul because here he's got like a black and white case, an incestuous relationship. But I mean, we all know that life is a whole lot more gray, right? And life is, is a whole lot more messy. And just figuring out how to do it and do it well and do it for the purpose of restoring someone and also for the purpose of protecting a community It's just very, 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 very hard. When I read verses 9 through 11, um, where he gives this rule for non-association with people, I get get nervous. He says, you know, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. He had apparently already written them a letter on this subject, and it's a letter that was lost and hasn't survived. So this was 1 Corinthians before 1 Corinthians was written. And apparently when they read it, they misunderstood him. They thought that he was telling him, oh, avoid sexually immoral people. Well, that means we're just gonna have to like leave the world entirely because, you know, the whole world is is sexually broken. And they wondered, how could they, how could they remain on earth? How could they continue to live in the city that they lived in and follow his, his instructions? But he says, actually, no, no, no. I, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a Christian and is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or verbally abusive or a drunkard or a swindler, and he says, do not even eat with such a person. So that means what? Like, what does that mean, really? Like, any Christian we think is greedy, any Christian who is not generous with their money and, 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 you know, has... Too nice a home, and, and too nice a car, and too, too nice a clothes that like we're we're not supposed to eat with them, uh, or any Christian who is an alcoholic, are, are we supposed to shun them? And sadly, there are churches that have applied these verses in that way. They they take all the people who fit onto this list and and basically say, if that's you, then we will treat you as if you are dead to us. You know, you're dead to me. No more Christmas cards no more communication. It, you know, largely that has been done in churches with uh, a cult-like feel, uh, and it's certainly done by the cults. But I don't know about you. It certainly, it doesn't seem like the way of Jesus, does it? I mean, what's the, what is the leading charge that the Pharisees and the Sadducees make about Jesus? It's that he eats with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. He eats with the greedy and the sexually immoral. One of the main charges against our Savior is that this is a man who receives and eats with sinners, and he's the one who's always opening table fellowship and moving towards them. Um, and the one thing that you know you never want to do is end up um, take basically interpreting the Bible in such a way that You end up contradicting Jesus. (laughs) So how should we understand this passage? Well, I wonder if Paul's Passover illustration can be a guide. Look with me in verses 6 and 7. Here he writes, uh, do you not know that a little leaven, you know, leaven is a piece of bread that has yeast in it, it leavens the whole batch of dough. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you already are. You, he, you are an unleavened batch. You already are holy. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. And then what he's doing is he's drawing upon you know the night that the Jewish people came out of Egypt um, in the Exodus. They, they didn't have enough time to, to do the normal domestic activities, and so they didn't have enough time to you know, let the yeast, the leaven, you know, go through all of their bread. And that's why... Um, Ever since when they celebrate Passover, part of a central portion of the Passover celebration in a Jewish household is to ceremonially remove to clean out of the kitchen in the household any yeast or leaven on Passover uh, to remember the, the haste of their deliverance. And so, Paul is saying metaphorically that leaven here it has a corrupting influence. And so, when I think when it comes to discipline, and maybe not associating with people, it seems to me that, that it needs to be a pretty narrow scope. Um, the questions that we should be asking in situations and trying to apply these verses are, number one, is the behavior a cancer that's going to be spread in the community? Is it a cancer that is um, metastatic that, that will kill if it remains? Number two, is the behavior doing something that's just besmirching the name of Jesus dragging the name of Jesus through the mud and that was clearly the case here and then number three are the persons involved resistant to repeated correction um, I can think of some instances certainly where this would be true I mean think about an abuse situation most abuse situations fit this description uh, it is a cancer it is dragging the name of Jesus through the mud oftentimes abusers they they are Resistant to taking ownership for what they have done Um, And I can think of other instances as well, but if the life of a christian community is at stake um, Then maybe we need Maybe we need to say I won't eat a meal with you. I won't come into the home with you Um, I won't platform you But again, it takes a great deal of wisdom and maturity to uh, think and do this well I need to conclude. Remember that this is for people inside the church. What does Paul say to those? Uh, how, are we, are, are, how are we to regard those outside the church? He says, stop judging them. Please, just, like, stop. Stop judging them. Um, like, we're to have high standards of character for one another, but, like, stop placing those standards outside our community onto other people. Um, Back in Boise years ago, there was this big kerfluffle. I guess it happened all all kinds of places about a Ten Commandments monument that was I, Forgetting the details entirely, but the, either the Ten Commandments mon- monument uh, was one that was already there and they were going to remove it, or it was what a bunch of people wanted to erect and you know put it in city hall. And uh, for weeks and months, people would have little placards in their front yard, yard signs that would be a picture of the Ten Commandments, right? And it's like we need the Ten Commandments, and you can see it in the signs as you drive through through the city. And uh, and it felt it felt to me it felt so performative, because as if, as if we follow the Ten Commandments, as if, as if we can even recite the Ten Commandments, like, you realize the majority of Christians, they, don't e- they couldn't even do one through ten. Paul says, stop judging others. You know, just focus on what, what you have to, to be and to do. Verses 7 and 8. The early Christians saw Jesus' own death as the culmination of the whole Passover tradition. Uh, They believed that he was the real Passover lamb, that his death had won the deliverance for the whole world. You you know when we say sometimes, uh, when somebody we will say this about like, hey, she is in her element right now, or he is in his element, right? What we mean is that in in that moment, that person is doing exactly what they were born to do. I mean, they're killing it. They're doing it. Well, do you know, Jesus was in his element when he taught us. I mean, go through the gospels. The guy's teaching all the time. So he's a moral instructor. He's very much in his element there, but he's also a healer. I mean, story after story after story, he's taking people who are blind. He's taking people who are crippled. He's laying hands on them. I read this morning, he, takes, he has a man who is mute and has him stick out his tongue, and Jesus takes his tongue in his hand, and he looks up to heaven and says, apatha, which means, I think, like, open up. And the man is able, Jesus is in his hel- element when he heals, but he is most in his element when he dies. I mean, that's what he was born to do, to be the Passover lamb, to take away the sin of the world, to die for you as a lamb, and to rise for you as a lion. The whole Christian life, from this point of view, it becomes one long Passover celebration. Like, that's what it's all about. Every breath a Christian takes is a silent Passover hymn of gratitude to the God who has acted to save the world through Jesus, the true Passover lamb. Um, And you notice then, Paul insists that, uh, that the unleavened bread of genuine Christian living is What? We might have expected him to say uh, holiness or purity, but instead he says, "Just live with the unleavened, live as unleavened bread of sincerity and truth." And that's what he calls us to do. Stop judging the outsider and live um, one grand Passover celebration with sincerity and truth. Amen.